This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. We're going to speak not about, well, about a dead soul, but also a dear one, uh, a woman who was much loved by many in not just the Melbourne theatre sector, but the Australian art sector more broadly, the late Margaret Cameron, uh, joining me in the studio to talk about her life, legacy and work, and in particular, a book of Cameron's writing, I Shudder to Think, Performance as Philosophy, which, as I've mentioned, is being launched at La Mama this Saturday, joined in the studio by Liz Jones, the Artistic Director and CEO of La Mama and a friend of the late Margaret Cameron. Liz, lovely to have you with us, even if it's uh, to talk, I guess, on a note of sadness, but also a note of celebration. A note of great sadness, but also great celebration, Richard, yes. So for people who weren't familiar with Margaret Cameron, who uh, passed away in October 2014, why was she such a significant creative figure? Well, she burst into my consciousness in 1975. Um, I mean, I wasn't 30 yet, and uh, Margaret must have been very young, in a play called Mishka and Namagava, um, where she and Lindy Davies went on this journey together. And her performance was breathtakingly extraordinary. Sometimes you, sometimes you are just blown away by someone's stage presence. And with Margaret, that happened to me in 1975. And I guess it was completely consolidated for me, having watched her do many pieces of work. Then in 1989, she did her own first solo work, Things Calypso Wanted to Say. And I thought I had never really experienced anyone quite opening their soul and welcoming the audience in, sharing their absolute vulnerability um, and taking us on a miraculous journey to that extent. Things Calypso wanted to say, I still, though it was 89, I still have a vivid image of barefoot Margaret with her blonde hair flying and in this wonderful little black dress with white polka dots. Oh. Now, uh, Alison Crogan uh, mentioned that things Calypso wanted to say um, had ever since Alison saw that work, she thought of Margaret Cameron as one of Australia's most significant theatre artists, <laughs> a poet of the stage. A poet of the stage. And it's it's wonderful that the book that's being launched is called... Um, uh, what you, you just said it. What did you say? Um, I, I can't see I it. shudder to think performance as philosophy. For, performance as philosophy. Because one of the fascinating things about Margaret was I felt that her life was a total philosophy. Her life was the most e extraordinary continuum of integrity. The way she... The, the way she was as a friend, as a collaborator, as a performer, as a homemaker, as a chef or cook or whatever. Everything that Margaret did had this, um, yes, this wonderful integrity to it. And it, it, it was very hard ever to find any inconsistencies in her. I'm sure they existed, but <laughs> yeah, she, well, her art and her philosophy were really, and her life, were all one. 
That's certainly something that um, uh, Tim Stitch from Chambermaid Opera reinforced when I spoke to him about Margaret's work because she had a, a long partnership with, with Chambermaid. He commented on the fact that art was diffused in every aspect of her life, that she never saw the distinction between her art-making and her personal life. They were always mixed together. They were. <coughs> I mean, it included the fact that in quiet indented heads where she lived just within view of the sea down the street her house was hot pink and iridescent orange so we called it crick neck because people used to get a crick in their neck as they whizzed past (laughs) and saw this outrageously wonderful house so the book that's been put together uh, collects, I guess, a, a range of, uh, of essays on art uh, and some of her solo works as yes. well. So it's an opportunity for people to, to kind of read these works, consider and, and imagine how they would have been staged and, and to gain a, gain a, a, a greater in, insight, not just into her career, but her philosophy as an artist and as a maker. Yes, it's, be- it's very beautiful. As I'm sure you'll um, have, have seen it's, it. The poetry of her work is quite extraordinary. Um, and the whimsy of her work is extraordinary. So I think it's a, this, this is a beautiful journey for anyone to go on who has known Margaret or who has never known Margaret. Um, I just love this. In, in her last work at La Mama, Opera for a Small Mammal, there was this lovely little line where the elephant says to the mouse... You're very small. And the mouse says to the elephant, I know, I haven't been well. <laughs> That'll give you a little taste. Yeah. Now, in terms of the publication of the book, which is published by Ladyfinger Press, who are an independent uh, publisher, I think, based up in Queensland. Yes. Yeah. How much involvement have you had with the book itself? Very little. I mean, mean, the the involvement, of course, the involvement with Margaret was a continuum because from 1989, when she did Things Calypso wanted to say, (coughs) she always um, uh, came to La Mama to work, you know, to... To, to, to work to first stage her work, she used La Mama as a kind of laboratory, as a studio. So things Calypso wanted to say, knowledge and melancholy, bang, um, opera for a small animal. All of these works premiered at La Mama, and I guess I was a party to, <coughs> excuse me, a party to Margaret's um, development in those terms. But in terms of the book, no, just. Um, Lady Finger Press talked to David Young and Tim Stitz and thought about where the book should be um, launched and they, I think, all unanimously decided it should be at La Mama in Margaret's studio. And La Mama has long partnered with Chambermaid um, and uh, so really it's a sort of, it's a coming together of Lady Finger Press, Chambermaid Opera, La Mama and Margaret. Now, as well as being a writer and an artist and, and the many other things that you mentioned, she was a teacher as well. Um, so her legacy will exist on, on numerous levels and per, hopefully perhaps continue to, to echo around Melbourne and throughout the, the Australian theatrical landscape as well as students of hers kind of share uh, their recollections of her through their work. Yes, and she was an extraordinarily inspirational teacher really wonderful teacher at VU, um, at the VCA, um, because, again, her 
She absolutely knew what she was doing as a teacher, what she aspired to, and she was a brilliant collaborator, never a dictator. Um, And, uh, yeah, she was magic for those students. They were so privileged. So she also, you know, she also worked... I mean, Margaret did everything. She also worked as a front-of-house member, staff member at La Mama. I remember someone walking in and saying to me in amazement, this is extraordinary, the most beautiful woman and talented actress in Australia is doing front of house at La Mama. And uh, yes, she was. <laughs> she, she worked at every level of society. Which reinforces, I guess, the, the broad view she had of the world and the way mm. that, uh, as we've said, kind of her art and her life, there was no separation between what she did on stage or, or with her students and versus off stage. It was all together. And that awareness, uh, her awareness of the strata of La Mama from front of house to backstage to on stage to audience, again, all interlinked as well. Absolutely. Wonderful. <laughs> Now, Liz, in terms of the book launch itself, as we said, it's happening at 3pm this Saturday, the 23rd of April at La Mama Theatre. Um, it is free, but uh, people are encouraged to book just so... Just so we know the numbers that we're catering for. <coughs> yes, just um, so that if people just ring up La Mama, that's 9347-6948 and let us know they're coming. Or you can book... Uh, try bookings. Try bookings Yeah, well. wonderful try bookings, yes. Yeah. Um, and in terms of the, the content of the book, do you have a favourite kind of piece in there or a favourite aspect or element of it or is the book itself kind of so rich and representative? It is so rich and representative. I think that, um, you know, of course, what what stays in my head is her last work, Opera for a Small Mammal, and I adore the, the whole script of Opera for a Small Mammal is, um, is in this book as are the beautiful, tiny illustrations of the mouse, which I just adore. Um, and I'll just read just another little bit of, of mouse um, f- philosophy. Even the mouse carries a great sorrow, through though his small voice would never pretend it wore the elephant's pain. <laughs> If you would like to attend the launch of I Shudder to Think, Performances Philosophy, collecting the, the work, scripts, essays and thoughts of the late Margaret Cameron, uh, the book launch is at La Mama Theatre in uh, Faraday Street, Carlton, this Saturday, the 23rd of April at 3pm. The book is published by Ladyfinger Press. You can go to ladyfinger.com.au for more information. And if you would like to attend the book launch, then yes, please uh, let La Mama know so they have a, a, an idea of what kind of numbers need to be catered for. Nine three four seven six nine four eight. Liz Jones, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Richard, very much. This is a podcast from three triple R one oh two point seven FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Right now, I'm joined in the studio by Grant Dodwell, co-creator of a new initiative which I'm particularly excited about, the Australian National Theatre Live. It's uh, If you've ever looked at, and certainly I know I have, plays that are on in Sydney or Perth or Adelaide and thought, I really want to see that, but I don't have time or the money to travel interstate just to see theatre. How decadent would it be if we, if we could? But uh, So this is an opportunity which will see plays filmed live and then screened in Australian cinemas, not unlike the National Theatre Live uh, uh, screening program that you may have caught occasionally. 
Grant Dodwell, welcome to Triple R. Thank you, Richard. Thank you. How long has the Australian National Theatre Live initiative been in development? Uh, look, it's almost uh, three and a half, nearly four years in development. Um, I think uh, there was an um, Australian performing arts group, AMPAG, did a, um, a report on it in 2010 and their summary was simply stakeholder management. In other words, you need to get equity agreement, the writer's agreement, the theatre company's agreement. There are a lot of stakeholders in, in manufacturing creative theatre and in order for us to point eight or nine cameras at that, uh, we need those agreements. And that, that took its time. But also we needed proof of concept. Uh, there, there are a lot of considerations we needed to, to sort of um, ponder. Lots of uh, I's to dot and T's to, uh, mm. to cross. But you have yeah. got to the point now where work is being filmed and you'll be showing the... Uh, the, the uh, Emerald City mm. at the, the Lido Cinema in Hawthorne coming up, the premiere of the program and mm -hmm. uh, the premiere of this production, which was a Griffin Theatre production a couple of years ago, I believe. That's right, Griffin Theatre uh, production with uh, Mitchell Boutel and Lucy Bell. It was um, uh, Ben Winspear. I, I, we wanted to film Emerald City because actually in the beginning of the film, Lee Lewis, the artistic director, talks about Emerald City. Emerald City is quite a... I mean, it's a, one of Williamson's early plays and it is, whilst it's it's set in Sydney, it's a bit of an indictment on Sydney <laughs> um, because it's based on David's, you know, it's autobiographical to a degree. It's the he, relocation from yeah. Melbourne to Sydney and the clash of culture. That's right. Well, he, he you know, and David admits he left Melbourne thinking, no, well, I'm not going to starve in a garret. I'm, I'm going to the Emerald City. I'm going to buy a big property and I'm going to earn all this money. And, of course, he hit Sydney, which was really all these shysters and people that, that divert him away from his cultural focus and his creative focus. It was quite a tumultuous time for David, and that's what this play is about. It's more, it's quite an indictment of Sydney, um, and there is a Sydney Melbourne rivalry, and it still exists today, which I think is always good. It's healthy, you know. Um, but uh, we're really pleased to be opening here at the uh, Lido on Friday. Yeah, and I'm look. I'm really glad that you've opened with a with a, an Australian play mm. uh, rather than a uh, an Australian production of an sure. international play, and also a play from Griffin because Griffin yeah. to me is such a significant theatre. It, it's a dedicated space for Australian. Mm playwrights in Australian drama and it's a really small theatre so mm. I'm, I want to know about the logistical challenges right. of, of filming in there as well because yeah. it would be the equivalent almost of filming at La Mama for example That's true. so the audience yeah. would be very conscious yeah. I, I imagine of the cameras in position. Yeah look that's that's very true I think we had five six seven cameras two set and five with camera operators drama cameramen the 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 gear is very small is is quite small and therefore compact and not very intrusive the audience know that it's a film performance so they're invited you know, to, to the film performance. It works extremely well in the Griffin. I mean, it's, it's surprisingly, we did the, the Wharf Review at the Sydney Theatre Company, which is a much bigger theatre, um, but again, an invited audience and still maintained the energy and the experience of live theatre. That's what we did. And as a matter of fact, I noticed... Um, Glenn is out there um, and he directed the Dapto Chaser, which we filmed as well. Um, and again at the Griffin. And um, 
it works really well. Not only do you get a front row seat, you are you you get the feeling of the intimacy of the Griffin. It's a wonderful theatre. It is. Now, what really intrigues me about uh, Australian National Theatre Live is, as we've said, not everybody can travel into state to see a play, and mm. not everybody can afford to see yeah. a play. And particularly for people who live in regional communities here in Melbourne, we're spoiled for choice. I can mm. go and see something at La Mama. I can go out to the Hawthorne Arts Centre and see a touring show that performing lines or somebody might be staging. I can go to the Malthouse, I can go to the MTC and so mm. forth. But if you live in a small country town, and you've had first-hand experience of this yeah. as a touring artist in education back in yeah. the day, people will travel for 100 or 200k mm. um, uh, more if it's a round trip to go and see a touring work. So mm. you're offering uh, regional communities, because I think you're going to be screening in over 20 regional cinemas. Oh, ex- exactly, and more as it builds, it, and it is building very slowly. And Richard, not only cinemas, but art centres, where, where there is no cinema in the town. The art centre nowadays have digital projection facilities, and we've been talking to Vic Pack and Narpaka, and again, that is a very strong possibility that we'll be taking it further. And even a step beyond that, community halls. We're in the process of getting together like a, um, a play in a play in a trunk. So what you receive is by courier or by train a trunk that you open that has your posters, your projection equipment, your everything there for you in order to do a fundraiser for the local cricket club or fire brigade, whatever it is, you have a one-off special event in your community hall and we supply everything and it's a, an Australian play, an Australian story. So you bring theatre to very small communities and this is what we're aiming for as well. Which I think is a fantastic initiative because we we know here in Melbourne that more people attend arts events than go to the, the go to the footy, for example. Mm. But there's still a, a perception out, perhaps in the wider community, that art and theatre are elite activities. And so this yeah. is about making them accessible mm. and and saying, yeah, you, you can go and watch theatre and anybody can enjoy it. And and you know, Richard, it's it's the UK research shows that. Um, it's almost like a third of people that haven't seen theatre before that go and see a, a filmed play uh, attend live theatre productions. So it certainly doesn't cannibalise the existing pie. It adds to it. It adds to community arts groups. They notice that there's a swell in people joining community theatre groups. So it, it's... And, look, I think the financial thing is really keen. You know, it, it's proven now that... You know, sometimes it can cost you $108 to go to the theatre for one ticket, then you're buying another one that's 220 then you've got the parking and maybe a couple of drinks in the bar, whereas you're seeing the best, great performances for the for the price of a, a cinema ticket, and that's really exciting. That's really exciting indeed. Now, tell us about some of the works that have been filmed mm-hmm. and what selection criteria you use to decide mm-hmm. what you are actually going to film in terms of production. Yeah. Look, admittedly, the first one, the Ensemble Theatre, opened their doors. That's that beautiful little theatre. In um, Kirribilli. In Kirribilli, yeah. Um, Hayes Gordon initially started it. Um, it's very, very successful. It's, in fact, one of the only non government-funded um, theatre companies. So. I, I interviewed the now 
previous artistic director and she joked that they were essentially funded by David Williamson That's because right. he gives them a brand new play every year That's which right. is always a, a big box office success and that then helps them generate income yeah. for the rest of the year. Yeah, he had the Chaser Boys in his last Jack of Hearts. It's in Newcastle, I think, uh, this week. So, look, the ensemble opened their doors and we did Liberty, Equality, Fraternity, Jeffrey Atherton play, uh, who wrote Mother and Son, very relevant about the internet, Facebook, Big Brother, who's watching us, um, and that was with Caroline Brazier, who, of course, plays Rake's ex-wife in Richard Roxburgh's ABC series, and Andy Ryan, Andrew Ryan, Andy Ryan, very successful young actor. Um, um, and then we moved on to the Emerald City, uh, then Dapto Chaser, Mary Rachel Brown's play, which is a beautiful play, which has just finished touring in Victoria, in Albury, Wodonga, and I think um, Wagga. And they're gearing up for a big tour in 2017. Now, this is interesting because people are saying, well, hang on, how does that work? You've filmed the play and there's a live version. The live version has first right, obviously. Now, places that can't take Dapto Chaser or indeed after... Did you see Dapto Chaser? No, I didn't. Well, it's coming next week into the cinema. Or, no, it was it was 200 k's away in the next town, but it's on at the cinema. So it's creating this groundswell, and we're just there supporting it. That's exciting. Um, and we're looking at filming Stolen, um, the Aboriginal um, uh, play, up in June. That's our, our next one. And the Wharf Review, of course, the Sydney Theatre Company. I think we're opening that in uh, August. And that's great. It's a review, colour, mu- music. You know, it's political satire. Yeah, um, with Jonathan now, Biggins. It sounds like the productions you're filming so far have all been Sydney-based. Yes, now we're changing this. <laughs> the, look, it, the only reason it is Sydney-based is we're Sydney-based. Um, I spend as much time as I can in Melbourne, and I have done from early MTC days to I did Anything Goes at the... the I did Sunset Boulevard with Hugh Jackman and down here. So I've lived a lot of my life down in Melbourne and, and absolutely love it. I mean, but... My base now is Sydney, so but we're in negotiation. Well, well, not negotiation, that's the wrong word, conversation with Red Stitch, um, Melbourne Theatre Company, because we want to get Melbourne productions. That's our next aim is to, is to look at, you know, really seriously consider. We have a Raj Sidhu is our um, sort of uh, person down here with our company who's Melbourne-based. So we have a Melbourne-based um, person down here. And is the plan then also to explain to other cities, so to get QTC involved, yep. to get La Boite also mm-hmm. in Brisbane involved, State Theatre Company of yep. SA, Black Swan? Yes. Now, um, we've already had a conversation with Queensland Theatre Company. Um, certainly um, the, the smaller companies in Sydney and in Melbourne, um, like uh, the Fitzroy, uh, the Red Line is a new company that started up in that Beautiful yeah, the old fits, yeah. Old fits, um, the Eternity Theatre, and conversely down in Melbourne too, the uh, downstairs, 54 downstairs. Look, it's if it's new, exciting theatre, we want to we want to capture it. Now, the other interesting thing is we've been in discussion with Foxtel Arts. Now, I thought, well, Foxtel Arts are going to go for well, we want the big names and we want this. No, I was, and they said. They said in, during the meeting, Grant, I can tell you're taken aback here, you know, because I said, they said, we want the smaller companies and we want the new Australian plays. So they're looking, we're offering them six Australian plays for Foxtel Arts to be screened. And they don't, there's no restriction. They're not giving us any restriction at all. 
great. Look, it, I, I think it's a really exciting initiative I'm, uh, because, it, as you say, it's not about undercutting theatre or replacing theatre. No. It's, it's about building the audience because yeah. once people get a taste of watching a play on film, for, for if you're a regular theatre-goer, one of the things that makes it magical is that shared experience with an audience and watching something happen live mm. on stage. Mm. So there is uh, something electrifying about the live quality. That doesn't necessarily quite translate into film, but nonetheless the opportunity to see works on film that you would otherwise never see uh, I think is a, is a really exciting initiative. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Richard. If you would like to learn more about Australian National Theatre Live, you can uh, jump online to their website uh, antlive.com.au and find out where uh, a film, a filmed theatre production is showing in a cinema or a performing arts centre near you. There's a list of venues on the website. Uh, and the Melbourne premiere of that Griffin production of Emerald City is happening at the Lido Cinema in Hawthorne this Friday night. And then on to uh, even bigger and brighter things. Yeah, I think we're following the week where the Randwick Ritz would uh, launch there. But yeah, look, I encourage people. If they haven't seen it before, jump online, buy yourself a ticket and come along on Friday because, you know, there'll be a few glasses of bubbly and a few, um, uh, quite a few Melbourne actors are coming and joining us in support. Um, so, you know, we're really looking forward to that event. So come and join us, come up and say hello and um, come and see... A, a, a filmed theatre production. It is quite an experience. It is different. It is unique. And I can guarantee you will feel as though you're in that theatre right there. As I said, the website is for Australian National Theatre Live, antlive.com.au. Grant Doddle, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Richard. This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. up to 28 minutes past 11am and my next guests for the morning have joined me in the studio playwright Jane Miller and theatre director Ben O join us to talk about The Yellow Wave which uh, premiered in Melbourne last year and is back in uh, in Melbourne again for a, uh, an encore season because it was so damn good. Uh, it deserves to be seen again. And I saw it last year and it was damn good. Um, so welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. Now, Bang, let's start with you because I believe you're the one who picked up the book initially that The Yellow Wave is based on and went, this epic story of, of kind of racial panic about kind of the, 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 the Mongol horde poised to flood into Australia in the 1800s and this epic love story and it, like it's gone with the wind meets Pauline Hanson. Um, <laughs> uh, you found it and thought, I want to adapt this to the stage. I yes, uh, I need to thank the State Library of Victoria for that. I was going through that catalogue one day and found a reference to The Yellow Wave, a romance of the Asiatic invasion of Australia. <laughs> uh, the title's irresistible, especially as uh, Asian-Australian director and I absolutely had to check the book out. Uh, kind of long story short, I finally managed to read the 400-page, <laughs> incredibly messy epic, uh, and thought, yes, 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 we must be able to do something with this. And it's been a bit of a journey since to actually get it onto stage, because that was about five years ago that I first stumbled across the book. 
And Jane, how did you get involved? At what point did Bing kind of ring you and go, "Help! I need, <laughs> I need help adapting this sprawling historical kind of slightly racist epic." Well, Bing and the boys were working on it, and I kind of regarded it a bit of as their passion project because it just sort of kept going on, and I kept hearing about the Yellow Wave, and then they started looking at it sort of in earnest and intensively, and they asked me to come in. Ben kept saying, we'll need a writer soon. Um, so I came in and I just thought, this is such a beast. Even the, the dialogue from the book that they pulled out was, you know, over 120 pages, and I thought, how are we ever going to wrangle this? But um, we did. It's just been kind of a journey. Yes. I mean, to give us some context, initially we did, um, we were part of Theatre Works uh, in the Works uh, Creative Development Program, and uh, that was really interesting, but then we hit a wall. I just couldn't find a way to make this novel, which um, I thought was fascinating, but uh, I couldn't figure out a way to make it watchable for more than, say, 15-20 minutes, until about a year or so ago, the idea of doing it with only two non-white actors playing all the characters hit and then it got funny again. And, it, look, having seen it, as I can testify that it is often hilarious because you've got two, ca- two actors on stage playing 30 or, or more characters. We started off uh, in the high 20s, then we had a bit of a character apocalypse, and uh, I think they're down to a mere 20 between the two of them oh, now. Only 20. Plus 30,000 Mongols. it seems very crowded. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so they are sharing the stage with uh, a couch... Um, uh, and a narrator. Um, whose decision was it to bring a narrator into the equation? I think that that was my suggestion uh, because we had so much. I mean, so much of the book is huge. It, you know, covers continents and time periods and so many events. Um, and so we, we had to find a way that we could make a path for an audience through those events and through that. So um, we sort of talked about a narrator and then I just started to write the narration. Yes. I mean, the book is epic. It's about nearly 70 scenes that we've uh, compacted onto stage here. And uh, the reason why it's so messy is, of course, Mackay himself, a fascinating man, uh, was at best an inspired uh, amateur uh, remarkable fellow, but he didn't like, let the fact that he couldn't write stop him from writing this book. <laughs> well, and why should you? <laughs> kind of like you've got an idea, go for it. But uh, I mean, yeah, as the book's full title, "The Yellow Wave: A Romance of the Asiatic Invasion of Australia," in itself, kind of um, will make people go, "Okay, I, I am intrigued." Uh, and Kenneth Mackay, amongst other things, he, I believe he went off to he eventually helped found the Australian Light Horse Brigade, or as well as the uh, Australian Army. Reserve, and uh, he was a New South Wales parliamentarian for over 20 years. Uh, he had a, actually a very distinguished career. So, Just not as a distinguished novelist. <laughs> yes. I mean, that was the other thing that attracted me about the book. It wasn't like it was an unknown crank who had decided to write this novel. It's actually a man of letters, a man who was well-regarded, who had Benjo Patterson as a friend, um, and had had some success with a book of poetry. <laughs> and uh, I understand the play, not that I've read the play. And, I mean, despite, you know, there's such a strong xenophobic thread running through the book, um, there's... It's written in such a sincere kind of earnest way that, you know, you can see that that the Mackay believes, you know, the things he's saying. That Australia is going to be invaded, invaded. By, by a Mongol army spearheaded by Russians. Yes. And, you know, it seems so crazy, this notion that we'll be invaded by brown people on boats. <laughs> uh. 
So, yeah, I mean, everything has come together, really. Uh, unfortunately, the time to do this is perfect. Yeah, but sadly it is. But in terms, Jane, of getting the tone right for, for the play, now, obviously, part of the tone is uh, you have a director who is kind of like getting the actors to perform in a certain kind of melodramatic way, but... Also, the script, I imagine, then has to pull away from melodrama to have a certain sincerity to it in order that it doesn't just become kind of a wash in self-indulgence and pastiche. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, that we, we do... Um I guess the tone, the tone of our whole show is there's a sincerity running through the script. We don't say a single bad word about Mikhail, the book. Yeah, so, I mean, we don't do a thing where we're commenting in the script on the book or any... I think our whole production, in a sense, is has a comment, um, but we really... All of the ingredients to make it funny are really in the book and really it was about writing the narrator to complement that and to draw that out but yeah I think that's absolutely right and in terms then of the the staging uh, being we've mentioned the boys who are performing it we should actually acknowledge them by name and and then maybe you could talk to us about how you chose to direct them in terms of getting the balance right between again between sincerity and uh, and and the 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 truth of the book versus this slightly camp melodramatic tongue in cheek performance that that results because watching it I I felt that it could easily have slipped into painful over-the-top parody. But you, it's been pulled back and, and works beautifully. It's found the right, that sweet spot. It's very much uh, thanks to the actors, the wonderful Keith Brockett and John Mark Disingano. Uh, we've been very lucky in that these two actors were in with us right from the start. So five years ago when I was looking for actors, uh, they were available. And uh, I feel very lucky that, you know, over this period of time, they've made themselves available. Um, surprisingly technical, I suppose. I mentioned that we had over nearly 70 scenes and um, we went through each scene really, really carefully in a lot of detail, uh, trying to work out exactly... Um we wanted each scene to not repeat itself, to have a joke, to be funny. So I suppose comedy always brings out the technical side of directing. But over and above that, I think we did have this philosophy that we weren't going to laugh at the book, we weren't going to laugh at Mackay. Um, and, yeah, anything else to add? I think, I think with the... And we, we complemented that, I think, with the narration because I think the narrator in Andrea McCannon is incredibly dry and... Uh, dry but an enthusiast for the book she's not there to comment the book or to put it down she's there to say to an audience here is this great Australian novel you've never heard of and also we really trust the audiences so mm. we've never felt the need to underline anything yeah I mean there's the occasional raised eyebrow for example that says it all mm. uh, uh, and which is one of the things I enjoy that's kind of yeah the the audience are not being spoon fed um, they can they can watch the production and enjoy it um, and the the wry sarcasm the the under the the melodramatic the melodrama underpinning the the cultural sensitivities it all balances beautifully so uh, i really enjoyed uh, the production of the yellow wave when i saw it last year so i'm so glad it's having a return season at the butterfly club it's it's spiritual home yes absolutely <laughs> so if you would like to see the yellow wave written by jane miller uh from the book uh by kenneth mckay published in 1895 directed by Bing oh it's on from the 26th of april until the 8th of may at the butterfly club 
Club Melbourne's home of kitsch and cabaret as well as many other fine things. Uh, located in Carson Place off Little Collins Street around the corner from the Town Hall in the heart of the CBD. You can book and find out more information at thebutterflyclub.com uh, and the company presenting the work 15 minutes from anywhere. You can go to their website 15minutesfromanywhere.com if you'd also like to know more. Jane and Ben, thank you so much for joining us here at Triple R. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having us. And I'm, as I said, I'm delighted the show's got a second season. Folks, go and book tickets. It's uh, highly enjoyable. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.